Welcome to another podcast from Stubbornly Optimistic on the Optimisticality channel. It's a podcast all about life, this random thing that we call the human experience and just generally getting through it. Today is a little piece I wanted to do as a follow-up from some stuff I did oh, nearly a year ago now back when I was doing some YouTube stuff. There was two particular videos that I kind of want to delve into called Why Some People Are Transgender and What Should We Do About It? These two videos kind of looked at some of the arguments about the phenomenon of transgenderism. Uh, there's a lot more to be said than I can fit into one single podcast, so I'll try and keep this kind of interesting and brief and, um, and relevant. For those of you that have followed me before, you'll know that transgender is something of my own lived experience. So that's a little bit of a caveat there. The scientific part of my brain and psyche is kind of putting that out there because one could make the argument that I'm not particularly completely unbiased on this point. However, leaving that aside, when I started looking at the arguments around gender, the first thing I realised that I needed to do was look at what constitutes an argument. Now that might sound really weird to say, but how do you how do you quantify what something is before you start arguing about it? And that that in in essence was the biggest problem. Um, people were trying to quantify sex and gender. Were they separate items? How did they come about? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So I took a step back from this argument and I looked at philosophy because that is essentially the study of wisdom. The word itself is um, meaning a lover of wisdom philosophy so within that there was how to critique an argument if you like subjecting an argument to philosophical scrutiny and then allied with that research came anthropology anthropology dropped out of the philosophical first cause argument i.e everything has a cause so if you're going to take in this case, we're talking about gender. If we're going to take the idea that gender is a social construct, why? And what is the first cause of that premise? If indeed that premise is true. Because from a philosophical point of view, when you're looking at anything, any argument, whatever it is, you have two questions to ask. Is this true? And how would we know this? So that's the approach that I try to take with regards to gender. Now, the first bits and pieces of the research were fairly simple. Um, I'm sure you're all aware of chromosomes, X's and Y's, um, and the general method by which people are determined to be male or female. And in researching that, it came to light that there were two very, very pertinent people around about 1920 
1902 to 1920 this this happened um, Nettie Stevens and Edmund Wilson both geneticists both studying um, the I think it was fruit wasps looking at the genetics of fruit wasps and um, they discovered the X and Y chromosome between them and at the time, there was some knowledge out there with regard to how chromosomes worked. Thinking back 1902, 1920, to put this in perspective, the DNA double helix that we all know from GCSE biology nowadays wasn't discovered until 1956, Watson and Crick. I'm saying 1956, 1952 is also in my head, certainly within the 1950s. So we're about 50 years, 50 to 30 years ahead of that discovery at this point. But there was some knowledge of chromosomes, how they work, how they altered specific parts. A chromosome alters specific bits, but not just an entire chromosome. Bits of the chromosome decide different bits of the human physiological condition. So when Nettie Stevens and Edmund Wilson discovered the X and Y chromosome, there was some discussion going on. Unfortunately, Nettie Stevens, who was a proponent of the idea that it was too simple to say that the Y chromosome's presence dictated a male and its absence and replacing with another X dictated a female, Nettie Stevens died in 1920. She died early. And Edmund Wilson's idea of a simple presence and absence argument took precedent. And we have to also look at context within this, because Nettie Stevens was a female. We're looking at 1902, we're looking at sort of Victorian times. Um, to be Even to be a female scientist back then was groundbreaking in terms of the whole gender role stuff. And essentially, there was also potentially some um, theological stuff, some religious stuff kicking around at the time that may have coloured the opinions of this idea, coloured the opinions of the creators of this idea, should I say, um, that there was the presence and absence argument. So that's the first thing, that for roughly 100 years, people have, at a very basic level, GCSE, biology, etc., um, school, school children stuff, being taught a very, very simplified version of genetic theory. And when it comes to transgender, a lot of the people that are against the legitimacy of transgender phenomena, and when I say legitimacy, I mean against it in any other term other than it being a psychosis, an illness, mentally not not all there, all that kind of stuff. Genetics has been used as a as a sort of a big pole with which to beat the transgender population and say you can't be this because of you've got a Y chromosome or you've got an X chromosome as appropriate. If we fast forward to now and look at the genome sequencing stuff, we've got all the technologies and bits and pieces. There's been work done where we now know that there's much, much more to it. For example, I did my physiology degree back in 93 to 97. So just over 20 years ago, I graduated. And back then it was thought that the default setting genetically for any fetus, that is a small collection of cells that has become to become a baby, um, was 
female, and we had to have an actively switched on genetic process to promote and produce a male child. That now is no longer the case. Due to new knowledge, and this is only a 20 year time span, we have a situation now where it's known that it's an active process on both parts. It is more akin to, rather than a switch, it's more akin to a set of balanced scales in terms of the hormonal stuff, in terms of the genetic stuff of mother and baby, and how that interplay works. Because let's be honest, cooking a child, in terms of a recipe, in terms of cooking a baby in, in utero, is a pretty complex recipe. So I wouldn't want to try and organize that. And there are multiple different variations in terms of this. So that's one thing. At the very, very outset, the X and Ys were uh, modeled up somewhat and oversimplified. Why was I talking about the genetics? Well, because of this first cause argument. Why do we have gender? We have gender because we have sex. And I don't mean that in terms of having sex as an activity. I mean, we have the category, the grouping, the phenomena of sex. In general, humans reproduce sexually. So we have this gender that drops out of that. You know, you have a child. Is it a, you know, what is it? Is it a boy or a girl as defined by being male or female? So the first cause of gender is the biological sex. In looking at the biological sex and finding out that these things are much more complex than just a presence or absence argument, we then get to see through this increasing knowledge that there's about seven different types, what you call karyotypes, of genetics within the human. Some are more common than others, granted, and what's known previously as the intersex phenomenon, where someone is born and they have anatomy that is not clear whether it fits into the male box or the female box, i.e. do they have an innie or an outie, um, then those people are quite, quite rare. But they exist, and the thing is, their existence is a clue to how this all hangs together. That's your scientific process again. Look at the anomalies, look at how things don't work when they, or look at how things look. Pay attention to how things look when they don't fit into the common, more frequently seen outcomes, and that will inform your process knowledge as to how people are created, if you like. Um, so intersex people exist. Now, previously we've only known about intersex, intersex people because of the same way we know about male and female people. We look at the genitalia. It's that simple. Having seen all of this stuff change recently in terms of the genetics, in this these time periods we're talking about from 1920 through to present day and from in my my lived experience from 1997 through to the current day present day having seen these genetic things change then what we're seeing what we're realizing is that potentially there is more than one way to be quote unquote intersex it is entirely possible and indeed incredibly likely that the biological soup that creates a baby that has an effect on the development of the, genita the genitalia, the reproductive organs, gonads, so that would be ovaries and testes, 
that has an effect on secondary sexual characteristics as they grow up, that has an effect on their hormonal stuff, um, will also have an effect on the brain, the anatomy of, and the functioning of. And if that's the case, and it's looking increasingly likely through various bits and pieces of research that that is, then because we know anatomically that people can be in the middle, why can't they be in the middle from a brain function point of view? And indeed, because it's difficult to see this, because it's internal to the individual, there are many, many, many people that could be walking around like this that weren't picked up at birth or in childhood, adolescence, etc. So it's entirely logical from this point of view that the phenomenon of the non-binary person would come to the fore because people are having a conversation about gender and realising that the groups that we've got, man and woman, for gender, male and female, for, for sex, are actually pretty limiting when you look at the overall lived experience of the human condition. So, what do we do about this? This is what the second half of my videos was about. What do we do about this? Because if we look at Hume's guillotine, again from philosophy, Hume's guillotine is a piece of thinking that suggests, in my view quite correctly, you cannot produce directly an ought to or an ought not from an is. So if a transgender person is physiologically different to a non-transgender person, otherwise described as a cisgender person, that's an is, what do we do about it? What do we what what is it that we ought to do? And the answer to that comes from consequential ethics. When you're looking at medicine, any type of treatment, you have to look at outcomes. And medicine in modern society is nothing more than our current best guess. We all have this, in general, idea that doctors, nurses, um, physicians, surgeons know what they're doing. And in broad terms, that's correct. But when you get to the limits of knowledge, then there is a current best guess kind of grey area, because that's where the learning happens. And at this point, we're in a situation where gender is very much at that. We've got about a hundred years in Western society of history of treating this kind of stuff, um, initially looking at it as a psychosis and as quote-unquote being wrong feelings that needed to be fixed, if you like aligning the feelings that emanate from the brain um, back into congruence with the body rather than the other way around. We haven't had great outcomes with that. So consequentially, that doesn't work. People have been made to feel worse. They've not had any recovery. Um, it's just caused them more and more and more problems. So flipping that on its head, as the medical establishment has done and gone, well, hang on a minute. Let's look at what happens if we do the reverse. And you get much, much better outcomes. People are happier in terms of living between their own ears. Um, sure, there are problems because 
the stuff that you need to do in order to make people happier between their own ears creates physiological changes that are visible to others. Um, in some cases, those physiological changes are good for the person, but because these are visible to others and very, very outwardly uh, obvious, then there are social challenges that come with the transition, if you like this, this approach. If you think of it in terms of diabetes, because if you've got a transgender person, you're going to give them hormones. That's what the medication is. It doesn't matter whether this is someone who is a trans woman going towards the female end of the spectrum or is a trans male going towards the, the, the male end of the spectrum. Um, it doesn't matter. They're both being given hormones. When you have someone who is diabetic, they are given hormones. They're given insulin. And it's the same type of intervention except for the fact that insulin doesn't physiologically change you in terms of how you look act sound etc and doesn't change any of the the sociological buckets that we put people in with regard to being a man or a woman so people go about their daily lives and don't really express an opinion about whether or not you should take insulin unless you happen to be from the Jewish community, because insulin comes from pork, pigs, or you um, have another, perhaps, objection in terms of being Jehovah's Witness, and then there might be problems there. So realistically, you know, there's, there's parallels. So that's the ought to, what ought me, we to do about this. We have to look at what is the best outcome for the individuals. Taking it away from the individuals and going to society as a whole, what do we do? Because very much recently I've seen a lot of things where the majority are complaining, supposedly, about the, the erosion of the status quo because they're having to accommodate the minority. Things like bathroom bills, um, looking at how you address people, um, a greater awareness of a situation causes people to modify their behaviour. That's just a simple process of sociological learning. People are going to be resistive to it because it's changing the normal. It's changing the baseline from which most people have operated in the last however many years. And to be honest, I don't think you're ever going to change that. We have had the same sorts of paradigm shifts in society when it came to homosexuality, when it came to uh, apartheid, when it came to women getting the vote, um, all sorts of things that have happened in terms of change. And some groups of people will see them as a change and a step backwards. Some will see them as a change and a step forwards, depending on the effects of them and their lived experience. And that's just a simple artifact of being in a society. You can't win because from that point of view, the only constant is change. Nothing will ever stay the same. So that's a little bit of an introduction, I guess, into where I sit with some of the arguments pertaining to gender. Um, for me, personally, as I've said, um, I identify as a trans woman because I had feelings as differentiated from thoughts. 
that were leading me down this path. And I'll probably do another blog on the difference between feelings and thoughts and how that pertains to the gender stuff at a later date. As ever, guys, if you've got any comments, queries, or ideas for subjects, bits and pieces that you want me to talk about, um, or indeed questions, um, what I may do is I may put out a Twitter link in um, follow-up pods um, and see where that takes us. Give me some questions, give me some feedback, and we'll have a conversation. We'll see what, what drops out of it. I think that'd be fun. So, as ever, guys, keep it real, keep it stubbornly optimistic, and don't forget, if you change the way you look at things, the things you look at will eventually change. Bye for now. Any more questions you want to ask? He wants us to get in the car. And go where? 50 years from now, when you're looking back at your life, don't you want to be able to say you had the guts to get in the car?